Um, we come today to the last in our series uh, on the parables of Jesus uh, from the Gospel of Luke. And I wonder, as we've made our way through these parables, whether you've been able to grasp something of the bigger picture from them. Jesus uses parables to teach us about the kingdom of God. And we can group these parables loosely into three groups. There are those parables that teach us very broadly about the nature of the kingdom of God. So they tell us things about how it grows, what its message is, what its value is. And we see that in the, the mustard seed parable, uh, the parable of the sower, the pearl and the treasure. Then there's a second group of parables that teach us about what life is like in the kingdom of God. What are the priorities of that kingdom? What should the people who are part of that kingdom be like? And we read there that they are forgiving, they're to be forgiving. We read that from the parable of the unmerciful debtor. They're to be compassionate. We heard that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But they are also to be reconciled to God. They are to be humble, prayerful, fruitful, rich towards God. And they're to have a heart for the lost. And there's a whole suite of parables that teach us these things. I've just put some of them up there. And the final group of parables are those that speak about the consummation of the kingdom of God. So Jesus ushered in the kingdom in his coming to earth and that kingdom is here and now and we are all part of it. But it's also not yet and it won't be fully known until he comes again. And so these parables teach us the important things we need to know until that time. So they teach us that we need to be ever watching. That's the parable of the ten virgins. They teach us that we need to wait well with what we've been given, um, the talents and the meaners. They teach us about how Jesus is going to be treated on earth, and, and that's already happened. Um, they teach us about justice and righteousness, and they teach us about judgment that is to come. And this final parable for today fits into that third group there about the things that are to come because it speaks to us about the signs that point to the coming consummation of the kingdom of God and the judgment that will fall upon the world as part of that. Now this parable that we have today is quite possibly the shortest one that we've dealt with in this series. It is definitely the most obscure when I read on the preaching roster that Pastor Glenn had put me down to speak on the parable of the fig tree, well, I was thinking of a different fig tree. I was thinking about the barren fig tree, which is probably the better known of the fig tree parables, uh, where there's a, a man and for three years he's been searching for fruit on his fig tree and no fruit is to be found. So he goes to the, the, the manager or the keeper of the vineyard where he has the fig tree and tells him he wants it to be cut down. And the man says, no, we'll give it another year, I'll dig around it, I'll fertilize it, and then we'll see if there's fruit on the fig tree. Now, if I hadn't read the scripture that had come um, with the title for today's message, that's probably where I would have gone. 
And if not there, then I probably would have gone to the fig tree that is cursed by Jesus. And I would have been totally wrong if I went there because that one's not even in the Gospel of Luke. And it's not even strictly speaking a parable. It's more like a, a sign act that Jesus performs for us. Our parable for today is not a very well-known parable. If you're reading books on parables, nine and a half times out of ten you won't find this one in there. It seems to get overlooked constantly for some of the better-known parables of Jesus and it has remained in their shadows. But today we are looking at the budding fig tree. So we're going to begin by reading the parable through. So if you want to follow along, you can do so. We're looking from Luke chapter 21, verses 29 to 36. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until it has all taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, on face value, it is a very simple parable with a very simple message. Read the signs and be ready. That's pretty much it for today in a nutshell. Read the signs and be ready. Now, this simple parable has probably caused people more trouble than any of the other parables of Jesus because there are a number of complicating factors in this parable um, that have led people in all sorts of directions and hindered its interpretation. It is the most hotly contested parable, I would say. Maybe there's a couple of others, but this would certainly be amongst them the most hotly contested of Jesus' parables um, for what it actually means. And that probably explains why a lot of people choose to leave it out of their books. It's, a, it's all too hard, so they skip over it. So I'm going to introduce you to a few of these complicating factors, and we're going to go through them as we, as we proceed today. Firstly, there's the identity of the tree itself. Does the tree hold any special significance? Is it special that it's a fig tree? Does it matter that it's a fig tree? And then there are two statements there that when taken away from their context don't have a lot of meaning. When you see these things take place, says Jesus in verse 31, what things is he talking about? The things are not in the parable themselves. And then he says in verse 32, this generation will not pass away. Which generation was he talking about? Did he mean the people to whom he first spoke the parable? Does he mean us? Or does he mean something or someone else? 
I would argue that this is one parable that is almost impossible to interpret if you don't read it in its context. And even if you do, it's still pretty hard. So we're going to take it quite a, a deeper look at the context for this parable today to help us as we seek to interpret it. So if you backtrack in your Bibles from where you find this parable and you go back to near the beginning of chapter 21, chapter 21 verse 5 onwards, you'll find there enough of the context to help you with the understanding. But if you really want to get the fuller picture, then you have to head back all the way to chapter 19. In chapter 19, Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and as he gets there and he sets his eyes on the city, he begins to weep for her. He weeps because he knew the tragedy that would befall her because she had not recognised her saviour. He says in chapter 19, verse 43, Enemies will build an embankment against you and hem you in on every side, dash you to the ground, leaving not one stone on top of the other. And then a little bit later on, he enters the temple and he's so disgusted by what he sees there, people buying and selling and changing money, trading that he throws them out, cleanses the temple. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And then if you go through and work your way through chapter 20, you'll see that chapter 20 is all about authority. In chapter 20, the authority of Jesus is first questioned. Then there's issues about the authority of Caesar, the authority of the teachings of Moses, the authority of the Messiah. And then towards the end of chapter 20, there's a little section about the abuse of authority by the teachers of the law. And that ultimately brings us back to this whole issue of the temple and what the temple had become under the leadership of the teachers of the law and the scribes and the other leaders. It had become a place where widows were being defrauded while those within the system of leadership who were supposed to care for them were instead seeking to elevate themselves through shows of false piety and long lengthy prayers. God's house was being used for unjust gain by some at the expense of those who could least afford it. So what we see is that the kingdom of God is being inhibited by what's happening at the temple because the leaders were not demonstrating these kingdom priorities in their own lives. They were not compassionate towards these widows and others. They were not humble. They were wanting to make a big display and a big show and to take the best seats in the, the synagogues. Their prayers were false shows of piety. They weren't genuinely prayerful. They certainly weren't rich towards God and they certainly didn't have a heart for the lost. And so Jesus tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed 
and he speaks to them of the birth pains that will follow and accompany the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. So Jesus has been teaching in this temple area and some of the disciples there start to remark about the stonework of the temple. The temple was made from enormous blocks of cut stone, white stone that had been polished um, so it shone beautifully and the temple was adorned with all sorts of different gifts that had been dedicated to God. They were probably things like tapestries or the gold-plated doors or other forms of artwork or carvings that type of thing and they're admiring all of these things and as they are Jesus replies to them that there will come a time when everything that they're looking at everything that they're admiring will no longer be it will all be thrown down one stone on top of the other and so the disciples ask when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? Those are the questions that have prompted Jesus to speak this parable. And so as we're interpreting this parable, we need to keep their original questions in our minds because they will help us to understand what he's saying in the parable. Now, the account in Matthew's Gospel will shed even more light onto the mindset of these disciples. In Matthew's Gospel, the questions are worded like this. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Matthew teaches us in his Gospel that the disciples had these two things linked together in their mind. They believed that when the temple was destroyed, Jesus would come again and that would be the end. And they believed that they, he would come and establish his complete reign on earth and that they would reign with him over the Romans. You know, it would be a triumph. So the destruction of the temple would lead straight away to this moment of triumph for them. And Jesus has to set them straight about for how things are actually going to pan out. He has to let them know that what they are going to experience will not be triumph, at least not initially. They will go through severe times of hardship and persecution. And that will lead to the destruction of the temple and the city. And the triumph is coming, but it won't be coming straight away. There's going to be an untold number of years between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And he doesn't want them to lose hope in that time. He doesn't want them just to grit their teeth and get through that time. He doesn't want them to try and escape through drunkenness. And he also doesn't want them to be burdened by all the anxieties of that time. He wants them to wait well. He wants them to wait prayerfully. He wants them to wait joyfully. And he wants them to be expectant through all of this time. So verses 8 to 11 give us a summary of the teaching that follows. And in that teaching that follows, Jesus lays out a chronology of what will happen. 
So he tells them that there will be this period of great persecution, but that it will also be a period of great witness. He tells them that Jerusalem will fall and that that will begin what he calls this time of the Gentiles, a period of the Gentiles. And then there'll be great signs in heaven and on earth, terrors leading to the coming of the Son of Man. Now the early church did indeed experience great persecution and the times in which they lived were also times of great witness when the gospel was spread far and wide from a, from a very small foci. I've put up a whole lot of references there. You, can, you just have to flick through the book of Acts and you'll find many examples of this persecution and also of this witness. So these things that Jesus told them would happen, they did indeed happen in their lifetime. The book of Acts um, yeah, tells us about how the early church got through that time of persecution. It was a time when they spoke boldly for the Lord and it was a time when the gospel was proclaimed far and wide. The fact that Jerusalem fell, well, that is a fact of history now. The historian Eusebius he records that the Christians at that time fled to a place called Pella, which was across the Jordan River. And he tells us that they did that, what he calls, in response to an oracle given by revelation. So the Christians around Jerusalem, which is down the bottom of that map, when they saw the signs, now the signs were the armies encamping around the walls of the city, when they saw the signs, they knew to get out. And so they went across the Jordan to this place called Hela. And few, if any of them, lost their lives in the fall of Jerusalem. But for the Jews, it was a very different story. History tells us that 1.1 million of them perished in the fall of Jerusalem and another 97,000 were taken captive during this time. Those who were the last of the surviving in Jerusalem are said to have taken refuge in the temple because it was the strongest uh, building left standing in the city and the Romans surrounded it and they set it on fire and as it heated up in there the gold plating that was around the building melted went into the cracks of the building and that is said to be why the Romans pulled the whole building apart and threw each stone down to get at some of this gold that was in between all of the, the cracks of the blocks of stone. So the sign for those in Jerusalem was obvious. The armies had encamped around the city um, and when they saw it, they got out because Jesus had told them to get out. And that destruction of Jerusalem functions for us in this parable as a type for things that are to come. When we're to see the signs, we know what to do because Jesus has told us what to do. And I think the signs will be likewise obvious to us. Jesus describes them as 
great signs in the heavens and on earth terrors leading to the coming of, son, of the Son of Man. Signs in the sun, the moon and the stars. On earth nations in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the seas. Now, that could be a literal reference to the roaring and the tossing of the seas or elsewhere in the Bible, the sea is often used as a, a symbol of chaos. So it could be talking about great chaos on the earth. These are extraordinary cataclysmic events. And the budding fig tree parable teaches us that they'll be obvious for those who are looking for them. And when we see them, we know what's going to happen next because it's as certain as summer follows the budding of those fig leaves. When the believers in Jerusalem saw the armies circling, they knew they'd seen the sign and so they listened to what Jesus said and they got out. When we see the signs, what does Jesus tell us to do? He doesn't tell us to flee because it isn't an enemy that's going to be approaching. It will be our saviour. And so he says to us, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Don't be weighed down with dissipation, he says in verse 34. Do any of you know what dissipation means? We're not supposed to be weighed down with it, so we should know what it is. I didn't know what it was either. I had to look it up. Dissipation means sensual pleasures and reckless living. Don't get bogged down with sensual pleasures and reckless living while you're waiting for Jesus to come again. Because you might miss the signs and that day will come upon you suddenly, like a trap when you're least expecting it. We're not to fall into drunkenness. We're not to be worried about all the cares of this world, says Jesus. Just wait and watch for the signs. Be watchful, be prayerful, and stand firm. So we're going to return now briefly to some of those issues that I mentioned that make this parable a little bit tricky for us to interpret. And the first one is that of the fig tree and its identity. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, the fig tree is used as a symbol to speak of Israel. Fig trees are often used in the Bible to symbolise Israel. And this has led many people take, to take the fig tree as itself to be the sign. So what they are looking for is they are looking for the restoration of Israel. And when Israel is restored they believe then uh, the Son of Man will come. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever of the importance of God's first people, Israel, uh, in his unfolding plan. But I don't think that that's what this particular parable is teaching us. The fig tree was an example of a very common tree in the area that loses its foliage over winter and returns to full leaf by summer. And Jesus speaks of it here in a very general way. He says, look at the fig tree and 
all the other trees. Now, if he was speaking only of Israel, why would you include all the other trees? When the fig tree or the other trees begin budding and new leaves begin to burst forth, it is a sure sign that summer is near. And it still is today. If Jesus was speaking to me directly about speaking this parable to me, he'd be talking about these little gems, these little nodding greenhood orchids, because these are the ones that I look for every year around Eltham, because when they poke their little heads out, that's the end of winter. Spring is coming. It's a sure thing. And I look for them, and when I see them, I say, oh, there you are. You're here again. The budding tree reminds us that one thing is guaranteed to follow another. The tree in this parable is not the sign we should be looking for. It's just the reminder that when we see the sign, we know what's coming next. So what are we supposed to be looking for? Well, verse 25 told us, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. So there's going to be something happening in the sun, moon and stars and on the nation's anguish and perplexity at the roaring of the seas, men fainting from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world and the shaking of the heavenly bodies. These are the things that we should be watching for. And many over the years have watched. In fact, many have made an art form of watching. Many of them have taken references that they find in the book of Daniel or elsewhere in the Old Testament and have made an art form of calculating when the Son of Man is returning again. All of these people share one thing in common. All of them were wrong. Perhaps the most well-known of these was a guy by the name of William Miller. In 1843, he made a prediction based on Daniel, chapter 8, verse 14. You can see the scripture up there. Unto 2,399 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Based on that prediction, he calculated that Jesus would return on the 21st of March, 1843. Oh dear, Jesus didn't return on that day. He had... 50,000 people who believed him that Jesus was going to return on that day. And he had about a million others who were curious and waiting to see if he was going to be right. When the day came and went and Jesus hadn't arrived, one of these followers um, suggested, based on another scripture in Leviticus, that there would be a tarrying time of seven months, uh, seven months and ten days. And so a new date was calculated, October the 27th, 1844. But how embarrassing, that day came and went as well, and Jesus still had not come. And there have been many, many others since. 1914 was predicted. Many of you lived through September 1988. Did you know Jesus was meant to come then? didn't come, but 1999 and the year 2000 were by far the most popular dates for end time predictions. 
Everyone from Nostradamus through Jonathan Edwards had a go during those years and had predicted that the end times would happen then. And you probably remember um, hundreds of people in Uganda um, died when their apocalyptic predictions failed to come true. Since the year 2000, it's been rare to find a year when someone somewhere has not predicted that Jesus would come again and the world would end. And so I think Spurgeon was on to something when he was um, told that Jesus was going to come in 1866. He said, because they've predicted that he's coming in 1866, I don't believe that he will. <laughs> Those who are trying to make these predictions are ignoring the words of Jesus who said, as for that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels on heaven, in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if even Jesus doesn't know, what would make any of us mere mortals think that we could figure it out ourselves? It's not the timing that is important. What's important from this parable is being prepared. Living each day as though it is the day when Jesus might come again. So that when he does, we're found to be ready. It won't matter when he comes because you'll never be caught unawares. You'll be ready, you'll be watchful, you'll be prayerful and you'll be standing firm. In verse 32, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, C.S. Lewis called that the most embarrassing verse in all of the Bible. And indeed, it has been pointed to by many to support their claims that the Bible is not true. They would argue, well, the generation that Jesus was speaking that parable to has long since passed away and all of these things have not yet happened. But is that what Jesus really meant when he spoke those words? Remember, Jesus here is using the more imminent fall of Jerusalem as a type for something else that is yet to come. The generation that saw those signs that pointed to that fall of Jerusalem, they saw Jerusalem fall within their generation. And so too, the generation that sees these signs of the end within their lifetime will see the very end. That's one likely interpretation for this passage. But the word that is translated from the original Greek into the English word generation here, it has quite a broad meaning in the original Greek. So it can mean generation, like we think of a generation, but in Greek it can also refer to a race of people or to descendants of one common ancestor or it can be figurative 
referring to a period of time. So Jesus might also have meant that in spite of everything that would happen to the Jewish people between the time at which he was speaking and when the end comes, you can think of all the horrible things that have happened to that race of people, they would not pass away until he saw the end. So that's two alternative um, understandings of what that could mean there. We do indeed live in troubled times, but so have many other generations before us. I can imagine that the people sending their sons off to World War I thought that the end must surely be near. The whole world was at war, as far as they could tell. And World War II, and the flu pandemic, and all these other things that have happened over time. In our generation, there are wars, there are rumours of wars, there are all sorts of natural disasters. We've lived through a, a pandemic, but there's no reason to lose hope. The overwhelming message from this parable is that God is in control. Everything that he predicted would happen to Jerusalem happened exactly as he said it would. And so we can be confident that everything else he predicted to happen will happen exactly as he said it would. Why? Because as sure as summer comes after the budding of the fig tree, these things will happen. The time of triumph will eventually come and we need not fret. We just need to wait well. We need to be alert. We need to be prayerful. We need to live each day like today could be the day when Jesus comes. And we need to be ready so that when those unmistakable signs happen, we'll notice them. And when they do, we can stand together, lift up our heads and know that our redemption is near. Now back in 1994... Uh, a man was watching the year's roundup on TV. You know how when it gets to New Year's Eve and around that time, we often get television shows running through all of the events that happened for the year. And in 1994, the key event for that year was the Rwandan Civil War and all the horrors that happened with that. And as he was watching, he was kind of filled with despair about the state of the world and what it had become and what horrible things people were doing to each other. And so he took it to prayer and in prayer he asked God if he really was in control and just what sort of times we were living in. And he felt God impress an answer on his spirit. He felt God say that he was very much in control and that these are special times that we are living in when Christians need to be filled with integrity and to stand for God, just like Elijah did in that top picture there, when he stood up to the prophets of Baal. 
These are special times when Christians need to demonstrate righteousness and right living like Moses did. They are special times when we need to declare what and who we believe, even in the midst of all sorts of trials and famines and floods and darkness and war, just like John the Baptist did, preparing the way for the Lord. These are times when we need to stand as one, the church rising in unity and purpose, much like the dry bones in Ezekiel's vision. These are times when we need to restore correct praise and worship in the church, just like David did. And these are also times when we need to go out into the world and to make disciples because the fields are white and ready for the harvest. These are the days when God is calling on his church to take a stand, to wait well, and to be ready for when that day comes. Now, that young man was a um, singer, songwriter, one of my all-time favourites, long-time favourites, Robin Mark. He's an, a very well-known Irish Christian songwriter. And he put those thoughts into a song. And we're going to sing that song now. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do.